instead of recognizing the goodness of our God and what he is working together and partaking in his amazing work, whatever doors he opens and walking through, instead of doing that, complain. Complain, make fights where fights don't need to happen. And these are the same people who profess the providence of God, yet know nothing of contentment or sincere love by which we deny ourselves and, and consider others to be more important than us. They know nothing of that. And then when something bad happens that they cause, they use God's providence as justification for their sin. Well, things were meant to be this way. No, no, this does not honor God. set up here in a new uh, podcast recording studio. The acoustics are still a little weird, so I hope you can bear with me uh, during this video lesson as we continue through 1 Corinthians. Um, I have heard it said uh, by many a father. In fact, this is the stereotypical type of father. My daughter is not going to date until she is married, and she is not going to get married until she is Thirty uh, In the Corinthian church, uh, apparently, when Chloe's people wrote a letter to Paul, we see that as early as chapter 1, they asked the question about releasing daughters who had previously been dedicated to the Lord. So maybe you're familiar with a sort of child dedication. Uh, they had a form of child dedication in the church at Corinth. So the family would bring the child to the front of the church, the church swears an oath, yes, we will help to raise this child. This child is dedicated to the Lord, uh, to being raised under the nurture and admonition of the Lord through godly parents and through the church community. So the child was devoted to the Lord. Well, children eventually grow up. Uh, daughters eventually grow up. They come of age. And this question was being asked, if a child, a very theologically minded question, right, if a child has been dedicated to the Lord, devoted to the Lord, set apart to the Lord as holy, is it okay for this child, this daughter, to be released and for her to be married and be devoted to her husband rather than to the Lord? A very legitimate question. If you have such a theology that says God is sovereign and those things that are devoted to him belong only to him. A very legitimate question to ask. In the church at Corinth, they, they ask this question. At least Chloe's people ask this question. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36 through 40. I'll read this passage in its entirety and then we'll just walk through it verse by verse like we normally do. Verse 36 here. But... If any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. 
So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. So here in this section where Paul is talking about the contentment of the Christian life, the, the contentment of the lives of those who are in Christ and recognize Christ as Lord rather than themselves. At the end of this section, he, he talks about this question concerning virgin daughters, uh, specifically virgin daughters who come of age. And he caps the end by reminding the people of his own life circumstance. Uh, Paul is a widower. And it is better for widows and widowers to remain unmarried. He just returns to that thought here at the end of this section in his letter to the church at Corinth. Let's walk through this verse by verse and see what the text has for us. Verse 36. But if a man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter. Now it's easy to read this and think, what, what kind of father acts unbecomingly Toward his virgin daughter, what a sick sort of person that must that must be. When Paul uses this word here, unbecomingly, I don't think it's necessarily sexual in nature. There are a few ways fathers can act unbecomingly toward their families, and it is not most often the case that this unbecoming attitude treatment is sexual in nature. A father, it's easy for a father to lord his authority over his family, particularly his, his children, to exasperate his children, um, to, uh, even when his children come of age, to, to treat them like they are babes in the faith. I was talking to someone recently, um, this person's children are grown, and this person still tries to treat her grown children like they are babies, uh, like they are infants. Uh, and this person complains about her children all the time, uh, saying that her children are incapable of doing things that adults need to be doing. Um, there's only one reason children are not prepared well for adulthood, and that's if the parents have not prepared their children well for adulthood. A principle, I think, is clear in this, in this passage. And once children become adults and are released into the world, they are there to make their own decisions, and they will make mistakes. Uh, that does not necessarily mean that they are incapable of being adults, right? So this acting unbecomingly is a parent exasperating his children, particularly here a father exasperating his daughter, which, who, who was devoted to the Lord for the service of the Lord, to be a picture of purity and holiness before before God, that all of God's children should be. But now she has come of age. And it is time for this parent to release his daughter, um, to not force his own expectations on his daughter anymore, to not expect his daughter to be all that he thinks she should be, but to let her go out into the world and to make her own decisions. So acting unbecomingly here is trying to lay hold of that which does not belong to you uh, treating your children badly, talking about children badly, particularly here the virgin daughter, the one who is devoted to the Lord and virgin daughter here does mean 
never married, and it is assumed in the text that if this daughter has never been married, that she has never had sexual relations. Again, connecting marriage and sexuality here in the text. But if she has passed her youth, if she has come of age, and if it must be so, if this is what she wants, and she is going to be unhappy remaining in your household and remaining a virgin, remaining unmarried, if it must be so... Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Just because you devoted her to the Lord in her youth, that does not necessitate that you keep her there, even if it will make her unhappy. It is not a sin to get married. It is not a sin to remain single. Each man has his own gift from God. Is what we've learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So far, so this doesn't break some kind of oath that was made to God. It doesn't break some sort of devotion. This girl has come of age. She is a woman now. She is capable of making her own decisions. Now, Paul is writing in the midst of a society that does not necessarily value women. Women were often seen as property. Uh, women often didn't have the same rights that men had. Um, in fact, almost all of a woman's rights were given in the context of either her father's household or her husband's household. And here as Paul is writing, he's, he's teaching parents how to be parents. That we have only a short time to raise our children into adulthood and then they are to be Released, and we no longer treat them like like children. We no longer force our views on them, our beliefs on them, our cultural expectations on them. We no longer uh, punish them, discipline them. We release our children into the world. This is the way of parenting. By, by the time a child comes of age, whatever that means in a certain social context or cultural context, when a child comes of age. It is a parent's responsibility to voluntarily withdraw any hold that parent has on his or her children. Now, by the time a child comes of age, there are to be no more rules passed down by the parent. That child, whether a man or a woman now, is to be released into the world. We are to consider their good. We are still to love them and care for them and keep them close to our hearts, but they they are their own people. And so this mentality that fathers have, like you're not allowed to date until you're married, you're not allowed to get married until you're 30, um, that is unbiblical. And the tendency all parents have to continue um, trying to raise their children, even after those children grow into adulthood, uh, that is unbiblical. We must release our children. Also, Paul does a great job here of elevating the status of women in his current cultural context. So women who are often looked down upon, seen as property. And that's uh, this question comes from um, people who grew up in a society where they saw their, their daughters as property to be given in marriage, um, to be um, basically sold into marriage. If you want to look at it that way, a dowry was given, the, the lady was bought with a price, uh, which in some ways shows us the gospel, right? Um, but in some ways it is just 
oppressive. And Paul lifts women out of that. It is okay for you not to give her in marriage, uh, not to do that. I'm not saying anything about arranged marriages or not, right? I'm not making that kind of statement here at this time. But Paul's language here, it is not a sin to let her marry. And the indication there is if she so decides to be married. She can decide if she wants to stay in your household. She can decide if she wants to be married. She is an adult now. She has come of age. This really is up to her parent. You can give her wisdom, but this is ultimately her decision. So, so Paul actually elevates women here. Verse 37, But he who stands firm in his heart being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Of course, we already know from verse 36 that the the daughter has to be complicit in this decision. I want to notice a couple things here about the attitude of the father in verse 37. He who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will. Authority over his own will. What does this mean? Well, as far as I can tell, in Scripture, there are two ways to live. Either we are slaves to our wills, or we are masters over our wills. The second is only possible in Christ, because Christ's will becomes evident in our lives. Uh, We are compelled by the will of Christ, rather than our own wills, rather than our own expectations, desires, preferences, we are compelled by the will of God, not the, not our own will, not the, not the will of other people. Uh, we are compelled by the will of God. So we have mastery over our own wills, not having to give ourselves over to our own lusts, to our own expectations, to our own preferences, or that of others, right? But the worldly way of living is as a slave to our own wills. I do what I want, when I want, because I want to do it. Uh, that is the that is the wretched estate that we find ourselves in without Christ. That is the very thing Christ is delivering us from. So there are two ways to live. Either I am a slave to my will or I am a master over my will. Uh, I have self-control. I no longer have to give myself over to my own lust, to my own desires, to my own preferences, to my own expectations. All of those things which cause conflict and tension in this world. Everybody trying to, James chapter 4, everybody trying to fulfill their own desires, all that causes is conflict. Everybody trying to um, fulfill their own expectations or force others to fulfill their expectations, all that does is cause conflict. Uh, Everybody trying to fulfill their own preferences and, and argue other people into fulfilling their preferences, all that does is cause conflict. Why? Because everybody wants something different. It just makes, it's just common sense, right? But if we are masters over our wills and we seek to have the mind of Christ, we live such that we deny our own expectations, preferences, pleasures, lusts, uh, everything of the flesh. We deny that and we live to, to give of ourselves rather than gain for ourselves. And we don't hold others to our expectations or our preferences or our whatever, our lives are now about Christ and we seek what he wants and he has revealed what he wants in his word, which Paul also gets at in this passage. So if anyone has authority over his own will, if he is not about himself, if this isn't about 
his meeting his own preferences or his own expectations for his daughter's life if it's not about that and he has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter for her good and with her thoughts in mind he will do well so it's it's not the outward action that's the sin right it's the heart of the parent if i am doing this because I made an oath and I devoted my child to the, to the Lord and I want her to be presented as religious and pure and I think things should be this way and I think she ought to believe the way I believe. That is entirely selfish. If I have these expectations for my children, particularly in this case a father for his daughter, and because he has these expectations, he is forcing this certain lifestyle upon her, that is wrong, that is sin. But if a man has control over his own will, if he is denying self, if this isn't about his expectations, his religiosity, his preferences, he's considering the sincere good of his daughter and the sincere um, good of, of everyone, everyone else, and he is considering her thoughts, then he will do well to keep her at home if that's what she wants to do. It is not a sin. The outward keeping her at home isn't the sin. The motivation is the heart is and all sin comes from the heart. So I, I find here, uh, just applied more broadly than a father and his virgin daughter, I find the idea present here that when we interact with others, when we live in relationship with others, if I expect others to fulfill my expectations, my preferences, to conform to my religiosity or my way of doing things, and it is, it is my way or the highway. I am in sin because the motivation of my heart is wrong. But if I am sincerely pouring into others and saying, hey, I'm a little concerned about the way you're doing this because Scripture says something, something different, I can do that without being in sin because the motivation of my heart is, hey, I would like for you to consider this, think about this, I think there's a wiser, more, more prudent way, prudenter, more wiser, yeah, yeah. That sort of way of doing things, um, but ultimately this is up to you and you must make a decision to either honor Christ or not. I'm not going to condemn you either way, right? That's probably a correct attitude to have, to, to build others up rather than tear them down. Um, so there is admonishing, and Paul is writing here to admonish the church. There is a form of admonishing here, there are two forms of admonishing here. One form of admonishment is, is sinful because it comes from my desire to force my expectations, force my religiosity, force my preferences upon someone else. But there is a holy form of admonition, which is me, for the, for the good of others, considering them to be more important than me, like, hey, Will you please think about your motivation here, pouring into them that way and loving them and trying to encourage them even while admonishing them. These are the two, two forms of admonition that we see. One is sinful because it comes from a bad motivation, selfish motivation. And one is holy because it comes from the word of God and a sincere care for others. And, and we have to care for others. Like a doctor cares for his patients. If a doctor cares for his patients, he seeks to offer a, a diagnosis for the purpose of making a person healthier. Um, our, 
our interaction with one another as believers in Christ is no different. That's what admonishing is. That's what admonition is. It's, it's a diagnosis like, hey, here's what it seems to me this is going on in your heart. Please think about these things. And if people rebel against that, um, they are probably not in Christ. This is like the person who has a doctor come in and say, hey, I have some bad news for you. And they say, no, 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 negative, no. Uh, I'm leaving, don't you dare even give me any bad news whatsoever. I, I prefer to live like I am living. I'm going to justify my lifestyle. And three weeks later, they're dead because the doctor was about to tell them they have cancer or something like that. You don't, you don't have long unless we start doing treatment right now to make you better. Like that's what admonition, that's the, the part admonition plays in the local church. That's what Paul is doing here to the church at Corinth. His motivation is the building up of the church for the church's good. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better, not from not from selfish motivation, not from forcing his own expectations onto his children, onto his daughter, but by considering her good and by raising her to be a proper adult, teaching her to make her own decisions, raising her up, building her up, giving his advice, he will do better if she chooses to remain unmarried and devoted to the Lord, if he keeps her at home in that way, not in a way that is forceful, and not in a way that where he is lording his perceived authority over others. Verse 39, we, we learn here that this, this contentment, and contentment is accepting you know, my place in, in the world, uh, understanding that, that I really don't have anything to offer anyone, that I am a sinner and I am a wretch and I need to live in repentance and I, I have no rights over myself or anyone else is what Paul has been getting at contentment. Contentment is, is the secret to happiness. Listen to what Paul writes as he closes out this section on Christian contentment. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. Uh, she is bound to him, right? But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. But only in the Lord. Paul returns to uh, talking about widows and widowers. He revisits this. This is, the, this is his own life circumstance. So it's, it's fitting that he closes this section of his letter to the believers at Corinth with this. She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in, only in the Lord. Only if the decision honors the Lord. Only if the person she is marrying is also in the Lord. Only in the Lord. It needs to be a marriage that honors God. Verse 40. But... In my opinion, here we see again, it is not wrong to offer opinions. This isn't something that's explicit in Scripture. Uh, this isn't um, prescriptive in the text anywhere in the Old Testament or the New. Paul says, this is my opinion, that she, the one whose husband has died, the, the widow, the widower, she is happier if she remains as she is, unmarried, if she remains a widow. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. They're justifying his own ability to offer opinions. So it is, it is good to offer opinions if those opinions are honoring to God and if those opinions are not led by our, our own expectations, our own 
preferences, our own way of doing things, but by the Spirit of God alone. If the Spirit of God is counseling us, and through much prayer and through much fasting, we develop opinions about things going on that aren't explicit in the Bible, those opinions are good to offer because they are of the Spirit of God, not something that is contrived in our own minds and in our, in our, in our own hearts. There he talks about her being happier, being content in her life circumstances. Now, brothers and sisters, you want, you want to live a happy life. I'll give you the secret. Contentment. It is only in contentment that we can live happy lives. I'll give you an illustration. I was in a meeting recently where members of a local church gathered. And they gathered for the purpose of offering up complaints. And they were complaining about everything. Maybe you've been in a similar sort of meeting. Uh, maybe it's even been a meeting that was set apart for the purpose of worship and of biblical instruction, teaching, admonition, encouragement, uh, correction, um, and the building up of, of the body and the training of the saints according to Scripture. Maybe it's a, a time even set apart for that. And the people come in, and instead of worshiping God for His goodness, and instead of hearing from God's good, good word, the people resolve to complain about politics. We never hear that in the church, do we? Complain about politics. Those darn Democrats and all the damage they're doing to this whole country. And oh my goodness, the end is near and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I can't believe what that person said. And I can't believe what that person did, whether political or not. I can't believe that person. Those darn kids disrupting the worship service and running around and eating all the church's candy. Uh, those darn people who were supposed to be coming to the church to do work, we hired them to do, and instead they were drawing on that marker board. That darn preacher, I cannot believe what he said. I cannot believe he doesn't do certain things. I cannot believe the state of the church today. It is heathenous, and it is um, rambunctious and it is rebellious against God and just all of these complaints about, about everything a person can find to complain about. Do you realize how, how good we have things in the church today? I mean, you want to, you want to see a church in a terrible circumstance. Look at, look at Corinth. Look at the first century. And the first century was far worse for Christianity in the current century. Now, the church has been through much worse things. And then Christ came, and he, he gave his life in the first century. And in John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus said something crazy like, I, I was not sent here to condemn the world, to destroy the world. But to say that in the world there's cosmos, he's referring to like quite literally the earth that we walk on and the universe we live in. He didn't come to destroy it, but to save it, to renew it. 
to bring a new heaven and new earth through renewal, not through destruction. The former way of things will pass away, but the creation will not. Like That's what Jesus teaches. Then you have all of these professing Christians complaining about everything. And when there's not a fight to be had, they invent something. And I've had plenty of things made up about me over the course of my life and my ministry just so people could could fight a battle that didn't need to be fought. In this particular meeting I'm describing, it's, it's a hypothetical meeting. But it represents so well what I have seen in so many groups that refer to themselves as churches. And instead of recognizing the goodness of our God and what he is working together and partaking in his amazing work, whatever doors he opens and walking through, instead of doing that, complain. Complain, make fights where fights don't need to happen. And these are the same people who profess the providence of God yet know nothing of contentment or sincere love by which we deny ourselves and and consider others to be more important than us. They know nothing of that. And then when something bad happens that they cause, they use God's providence as justification for their sin. Well, things were meant to be this way. No, no, this does not honor God. And people who claim to be Christians... People who claim to be part of the elect people of God walk around bitter and sour. They are not content. They bear all the fruit of unrighteousness and use the providence of God to justify their own sin. This grieves my spirit. And if this describes you, I want you to know I I am praying for you. My desire is not your destruction. I desire that you be built up in the Lord, that we not just profess sound doctrine, but that we understand who God is. And when we, when we, when we grow past merely professing something to understanding what the providence of God is, that breeds contentment in our lives and our hearts. And that contentment breeds happiness joy and forgiveness and repentance causes us to consider others to be more important than ourselves causes us to be a peaceable people a people without complaint a people who celebrates everything good God does rather than trying to produce fights where fights need not exist even treating those in the community well, not complaining or holding grudges against our former pastors or congregations, plenty of that going around too. It's just malcontent welling up in our lives to to, to bitterness and destruction. The key to happiness is, is contentment. Brothers and sisters, may we pursue contentment in our lives. Contentment, in Christ. And I guarantee, because I experience it every day, I guarantee that will produce happiness. We don't have to hold grudges. We don't have to pursue our own lust, our own expectations, our own preferences, our own 
desires. Those things are binding. We are slaves to our will. Christ is freeing us, liberating us from our own wills, which are so destructive. He's bringing contentment in our lives and happiness in our lives. This is what I hope for each and every person. This is my prayer for the church, that in the church we learn what contentment is. Because when we complain about anything and when we gossip, we slap God in the face because of what he has worked together. And we often don't even realize we are doing that. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Let us take these words to heart. For I, I believe I also have the Spirit of God in me. And this is what Scripture teaches. This is how Paul admonishes the church at Corinth. And this is how we, the church of Jesus Christ, are admonished today. I hope you have a blessed week. And, uh, and I, am, I am praying for you. If you have any prayer requests, please send those in. And uh, please be praying for our church plant in Douglas, Arizona and our brand new Bible study and worship time in Wilcox, Arizona. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll catch you next time.